Hey, history fam, it's Melissa from God's Favorites, a history podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who has donated to our Patreon page. Really appreciate it. That money is used for books, any sort of research cost, music licensing, distribution cost. And keep an eye out as we look to get some rewards and prizes going on that page. So you can look it up on Patreon under God's Favorites, a history podcast. Thank you so much for donating. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. It had been seven years. Adrian had died seven years prior, and Lafayette remained forlorn and isolated at LaGrange. He was getting older. His hip ached, and he remained in the background as he had promised Napoleon Bonaparte he would. His children were concerned about the state of their father's mental and physical health. Lafayette's son George kept his father's friends in America up to date of any happenings in their life. The only thing that brought Lafayette joy was agriculture. And he had become quite the farmer, but Lafayette became something of a hermit. Few of his friends from the American Revolution remained alive. He was still writing to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, but Washington was gone. Hamilton was gone. His wife was gone. France was in turmoil for most of this part of Lafayette's life, thanks mostly to Napoleon Bonaparte, who was always engaged in some sort of combat, it seemed. If he wasn't throwing the Grand Armée at the Russians, he was trying to expand his empire's collection of artifacts and arts. Lafayette did not care for the emperor. It was not a secret. Napoleon, who I think embodies the saying, you either die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain, was in the latter stages of that career. Napoleon did not suffer political adversaries, but for whatever reason, Lafayette and Napoleon held a frosty détente, something that Bonaparte's friends called miraculous. Lafayette knew it wasn't a miracle, the trick was to not appear threatening to Napoleon and just play along until his star burned out. The Marquis knew the Emperor's light was bright and would eventually extinguish. It would be Napoleon's brother, Joseph, who had to reach out to Lafayette one last time in 1815. Bonaparte had been in exile on the island of Elba, but had snuck back into France to run off the recently re-established Bourbon throne. Louis XVIII fled immediately, and Napoleon vowed to restore France to the glory it had seen in the early days of his reign. On April 19, 1815, Lafayette received a letter from Joseph Bonaparte with yet another offer. They wanted to build a more secure government for Napoleon, and believed Lafayette would be an asset to them in swaying public opinion. He refused. If my fellow citizens call me to Paris, I will not refuse their confidence. But I will not re-enter political life at the request of the emperor. When Napoleon learned of Lafayette's refusal, he is said to have become incredibly angry, yelling out, How is it that everyone else learns their lessons but Lafayette will not? He has not yielded a jot. He never would. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. The Marquis de Lafayette, Episode 5.
Despite Napoleon claiming the contrary, Lafayette had learned a lot. He waited patiently. Just a few months later, France's empire would topple at the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium. As Napoleon and his army retreated from the British and the Prussians, Bonaparte's brother tried to have Napoleon granted emergency powers as dictator. But Lafayette finally put his foot down. Enough was enough. He had a solution. He would arrange for the emperor to go to the United States if he would abdicate. Napoleon agreed with this, but the British had other ideas. Napoleon was on his way out of the country when he was stopped and redirected to the island of St. Helena. He would remain there until his death. Napoleon had named his young son, Napoleon II, as emperor, but that would be overruled as a five-man directory popped up to run the government. The Prussians and British set their sights on reinstating the Bourbon monarchy, as well as demanding reparations from the French government for the hell Napoleon had unleashed across Europe. Lafayette, no doubt, was frustrated. The moment he had finally been able to stop dealing with the Bonaparte brothers, the Bourbons returned. Then he learned that his beautiful and beloved farm at Lagrange had been overtaken by the Prussians. Thankfully, the estate was returned to him later that year. Lafayette had to watch helplessly as those who had lost family and rank during the Revolution turned around and began executing the Jacobins and the Bonapartists. The Lafayettes, once again, stayed silent. Georges was becoming more concerned with his father's withdrawal from public life. He fussed over Lafayette, trying to help him keep up with his correspondence or around the house, and every day Lafayette would visit with his daughters and grandchildren, and every night... For an hour or so, he would sit in Adrian's bedchambers, talking to her as though she were in the room with him and not in the ground. He carried around a miniature painting of her with a small inscription of her last words, Je suis tout à vous, and a lock of her hair. Despite setbacks in 1817, when crops at neighboring farms began to fail, Lafayette insisted Lagrange's food sources be used to feed all those around him, the adoration resulted in Lafayette being appointed to a seat in the National Assembly. Louis XVIII was less than thrilled. The Bourbons were in control again, and the last thing they needed was a perpetual reminder of the successful American Revolution. The king began imposing laws of censorship after an extremist assassinated his nephew. But Lafayette immediately began fighting back for freedom of speech and the press. At 61 years old, he still maintained his idealistic temperament of yore. The royalist now despised Lafayette, who himself had been a noble before. Lafayette's son noticed that suddenly the old man became very youthful once more as he began verbally sparring with royalists. When accusations flew at Lafayette for feeding into another revolution in France, Lafayette responded in an ad hominem type manner, saying the aristocrats were becoming angry and unhinged and shrieking, quote, like women who get angry with the artist who paints their portrait. The fire was lit once more, and Lafayette, as he had done many times in the past, was holding up a mirror so that France could see itself. 
1821, a plot was uncovered to stage a coup and overthrow Louis. Immediately, the king began having most anyone he could arrested. He toyed with the idea of arresting Lafayette and George Washington de Lafayette for stoking revolutionary fervor, but smartly figured it would have the opposite effect. But Lafayette was walking on thin ice when a deus ex machina comes in the form of a letter from President Monroe. Monroe wanted Lafayette to visit him and tour the United States, which was continuing to spread out and grow. Louis was jealous of the pomp and pageantry and made sure that no crowds gathered to celebrate the man who had become a thorn in his majesty's side. Even the king's disagreeable send-off couldn't spoil the fun. Lafayette was heading back to his other home. When the Beatles made it to America in the 1960s, they were greeted by throngs of screaming fans. And there are quite a few similarities between the British invasion of music this time, thankfully not troops, and Lafayette's return. He arrived in New York Harbor to pomp and circumstance and then held a meet and greet with those who waited in line to shake his hand or kiss his cheeks. The lines were full of veterans who wanted to know if he remembered them and if he didn't. Well, he would lie and tell them, of course I remember you. Even walking with a limp didn't slow the man down as they began traveling from town to town. He kept the same energy up. He even gave the following speech in Boston. My obligations to the U.S. far surpassed the service I was able to render. These date back to the time when I had the good fortune to be adopted by the United States as one of her soldiers. America was, at this time in her history, coming into its own as a country. The War of 1812 had ended, and Americans were in a period of greater stability than they ever had been. They were to spend 13 months crisscrossing over this country, and Lafayette was so anxious to see how she had grown. It was Lafayette's tour that caused a lot of the historic monuments we have now to pop up. These sites were preserved so that Lafayette could visit them, and it persuaded many an American to also visit sites like Independence Hall. Lafayette's visit was full of stops in many of the new states, including in my home state of Kentucky, where several sites are now named for him. In fact, it's very likely that if you grew up on the East Coast, you likely have a building, school, or town named for the Marquis. But he made it a point to go back to Virginia as quickly as he could to where his father was buried. On October 17th, Lafayette and George made their way to Mount Vernon, where the aging and limping Lafayette would finally have a chance to visit the graves of both George and Martha Washington. He sat silently and wept before making his way back into the house. Lafayette was then presented with a lock of Washington's hair, a possession he would keep with him until his own death. Lafayette's days were a blur of travel and conversation and dinners and balls. He stopped in Yorktown to relive a bit of the glory there and even wandered around the campus of the University of Virginia. In Richmond, Lafayette would be greeted by an honor guard, among which would be a very young Edgar Allan Poe. The tour continued, and if Lafayette ever felt used to sway public opinion, he never said as much. He was likely too busy enjoying the accolades and fanfare and the invitations to visit historic sites just kept coming. Every time he learned a city was named for him, he beamed like a small child. This tradition, of course, continues as there are 36 cities in the United States 
that are named for Lafayette. Monroe had also convinced the United States to pay Lafayette $200,000 in bonds to replace some of the fortune he had spent. There was some grumbling as the government was already paying for all of his accommodations during the tour, but they agreed that Lafayette had poured so much of his own money into the cause that it was, frankly, necessary to reimburse him. Lafayette's financial security was fragile at best following the revolution. He was now living on his land alone, and this would help ease some of that. In 1825, the House of Representatives named John Quincy Adams president. And there were whispers that supporters of Andrew Jackson planned on storming in and causing violence at Monroe's banquet for Adams. Lafayette hoped that the Americans would avoid a similar situation to the French, who had been ready to kill and maim for the last several decades. His fears of insurrection were quieted by Andrew Jackson arriving on scene with an outstretched hand, accepting the results of the election. Americans, he surely thought, were intent on keeping their liberty, and they would work together. This wasn't France, after all. The journey across the southern U.S. proved to be quite painful for the older man. Bumpy roads caused his hips and joints to ache. It was during a stop in St. Louis, Missouri, that Lafayette saw a ghost. He was certain. A young man with red hair approached him, and Lafayette almost fainted. The young man reached to grab Lafayette's arm and hoist him back to his feet. I apologize. Lafayette said. I thought you were someone else. There was a brief moment of confusion, but then the young man beamed. Oh, no, I know who you thought. No, I'm not. Allow me to introduce myself. The young man held out his hand. I'm Alexander Hamilton Jr. You knew my father. Yes, I did, said Lafayette. Lafayette also spent some time alongside Andrew Jackson at his plantation, Hermitage, where the two talked mostly about agriculture, with Jackson offering tips, and then he climbed aboard a boat headed back north. Somewhere on the Ohio River, the group's vessel ran aground while Lafayette slept. As the ship began to flood with water, George carried his father gently and placed him into a lifeboat where he was ferried to Louisville, Kentucky. It had been an unexpected stop. However, they could not rest long before making it back up the river toward Indiana and Ohio. Eventually, they made their way back to Boston in time to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. A speech was given by Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster praising Lafayette for his efforts in supporting the American cause. After the ceremony, Lafayette was spotted filling up a sack of dirt. When asked what he was doing, Lafayette did not hesitate. I want to be buried under this dirt. The next several stops were a blur of ceremony, and if the run-in with future horror novelist and poet Edgar Allan Poe wasn't enough, some time later, Lafayette would kiss the cheek of a young boy whose family thrust him into his arms. That young boy, of no more than five or six, was Walt Whitman. Lafayette spent his 68th birthday with John Quincy Adams, who he had only ever known as a young boy. The president was never supposed to give toast, but Adams lifted a glass. To the 22nd of February, to the 6th of September, Adams said, Washington's birthday and Lafayette's birthday. The Marquis quickly responded, 
lifting his own glass. Two, the 4th of July. At 68, Lafayette knew he would never return to the United States. He bid a tearful and emotional goodbye to the country he had helped forge. But it was time to go home. 24 days later, he and George made it safely back to France. Louis XVIII had died while the pair were in the United States. This left the throne to Charles X. Upon arrival, Lafayette was relieved that there were no kingsmen waiting for him. He and George took some rest and then began to head to Paris. At a stop halfway, Lafayette heard a crowd of people gathering below his balcony. Thinking nothing of it, he stepped outside to wave at the crowds who cheered his appearance. And then the police descended upon them. They struck the women and children in the crowd and violently dragged them away. Lafayette could only watch helplessly as the crowd was dispersed. It was, sadly, very painfully obvious what this was. It was a message from King Charles X. A reminder that as beloved as he may be elsewhere in the world, all they would have to do is snap their fingers. Lafayette left the chaos, walked back to his table, and sat down in silence with his son. They finished their meal and went to bed. How strange to go from a country where you're one of the most beloved people of all time to a place that could have you eradicated if you go against the grain. The next few years would not be kind to Lafayette. But he would continue to fight. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast written and produced by me, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll finish up Lafayette in two weeks with the July Revolution and the June Rebellion. Do you hear the people sing? Thank you to everyone who has donated to our Patreon campaign. The funds from Patreon go to things like music licenses, books, any sort of resources, distribution cost. And join in the conversation on God's Favorites, a history podcast on Facebook and on TikTok at my handle at Melissa Fair Lady. Sources for today include Lafayette by Harlow Giles Unger, Hero of Two Worlds by Mike Duncan, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States by Sarah Val. AmericanHeritage.org and MountVernon.org. And we'll see you in two weeks as Lafayette gets to be front and center for the events that inspired Les Miserables, which is just fun to say. See you next time, friends.